0: all right welcome back into the original gangsters podcast i'm scott bernstein along with my co-host and partner in crime jimmy Bucciolato. hello we call him the doc because he has a phd and makes us all look <laughs> not as smart as him so we're we're here the the second episode of our relaunch we're really excited to be in our new home in our palatial new studios here at the startupnation.com and we want to give a shout out to uh WJR and their brand new great voice of the Great Lakes Podcast Network that we're a part of, and we're just real happy to be here and uh, get all this great support and all this love from the Startup Nation and WJR people. So uh, thank you, and uh, we're gonna uh, you know for the fans out there, for all the the consumers, we're gonna be giving you very consistent original Gangsters Podcast content. It's not gonna be as random as it was in the past. We're gonna try to give you uh, episodes once a week, and uh, we're very excited about the episode we're gonna do right now. Uh, we're gonna talk about the pandemic the covid-19 virus and and uh, the criminal justice system specifically the bureau of prisons and how a lot of felons both uh, very high profile felons and lesser profile felons are are been trying to leverage covid-19 into compassionate releases and a lot of them have been successful in getting their sentence reduced or getting out of prison to do their remainder of their time on home confinement We had a situation that uh, broke here in Detroit in the last week that has uh, been on the uh, national news radar. Uh, It's being written about now in all the papers in uh, Washington, New York, and L.A., and that was the release of a pretty infamous drug kingpin from the west side of Detroit, John the Breadman Bass, who uh, ran the Dog Pound drug gang of the 1990s. He was convicted. I believe he was arrested, indicted in 1998, convicted I believe in 02 of a double murder count, serving two life sentences without parole. One of those murders was tied to the gangland slaying of his half brother and dog pound co-founder Pat the Ram Webb, and he had a compassionate release motion in front of U.S. District Court Arthur Tarnow down um, in the federal building in Detroit. And even though he was serving a double life homicide conviction and was looking at no chance of parole, Arthur Tarnow let him out of prison in late January. When the news of him being released hit the media, there was kind of an outcry and an outrage from federal prosecutors. They appealed the decision to let Breadman Bass out and the Appellate court in Cincinnati stayed the proceedings and John Bredman Bass was picked back up over the weekend and will have to await the decision from the appellate court about whether or not he can go free. If Arthur Tarnow's decision to let him go free stands, he'll have to wait to hear from behind bars. We're very lucky to bring on a very special guest, Anjali Prasad. She is a criminal defense attorney out of Royal Oak. She's been focusing her practice in the last year or so on uh, helping defendants, use compassionate release to uh, extricate themselves from prison early based on COVID concerns, and a lot of that stuff is legitimate. I don't necessarily, not to uh, editorialize too quick in this, I'm not sure if I agree with uh, letting the bread man bass out, but there are a lot of felons right now that uh, probably deserve to get out, and, you know, Mrs. Prasad is, is doing everything she can to help her clients. She was a federal prosecutor, a state prosecutor, and then recently has gone into private practice on Royal Oak. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Scott.
0: Yeah. So uh, why don't you um, kind of tell us how you came about kind of trying to focus on on this kind of niche of criminal defense in the last year since, since the pandemic broke out?
1: Actually, what happened was I'm a federal defense attorney and I happen to have a handful of clients in federal prison in Morgantown, West Virginia, actually. Um, A lot of my clients are white-collar clients who are convicted in Detroit, and they end up going to Morgantown, FCI, because it's a low-security facility. And um, what ended up happening really was COVID broke. And somehow my name got mentioned a couple times in Morgantown, West Virginia, and a couple guys contacted me, guys who I wasn't representing at trial, but who are serving their sentence, and asked if I could help them get released on COVID. Now, this was about March when COVID literally had just broken. Compassionate release has always been a vehicle available to criminal, federal criminal defendants, but it was very, very selectively used. Um, Prior to COVID, you were going to see compassionate release used mostly in situations where the inmate was the caregiver to somebody who was terminally ill. That was... Sort of the compassionate release that the legislature had in mind. The idea behind that was that the um, the courts would exercise compassion in releasing the inmate who could then take care of the loved one who was terminally ill. So COVID broke, and we started using compassionate release. If you if you read the letter of the law, there's nothing prohibiting us from using compassionate release in circumstances in which the inmate himself is actually in a a volatile situation, a a delicate health situation that would merit compassion. So what we did in the defense bar is we pieced together an argument where we are applying this pre-COVID legislation known as compassionate release to COVID-related cases. And I, um, I mean, honestly, I just got lucky in the beginning. I had a couple white-collar clients who had no violent history and sort of hit what I call the COVID trifecta. The COVID trifecta is high blood pressure, diabetes, and or obesity. And these are what the CDC has been telling us makes you particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. So you take a vulnerable person to COVID-19 and you put them in a custodial setting where there's no hand sanitizer, there's no ability to wash their hands every day, and there's no real opportunity for social distancing. You take those two and you make an argument that this highly vulnerable individual is really in a powder keg and needs to get out. So this is what I started doing. I started applying for compassionate release, I have to tell you, I was extremely successful on my uh, non-violent clients, my clients who had, as I said, a white-collar history or um, they were they had committed economic crimes. I ran into stumbling blocks on my on my violent clients, my clients with a violent background or numerous uh, criminal convictions, and I um, the judges, my judges, I should say, across the board were a little more took a little more of a hard line when my client had a hardened criminal history and I was arguing for his release. So enter John Bass into the equation and you get a federal judge to overlook that criminal history and release him on COVID grounds. It's really, um, I mean, you know, from the criminal defense attorney is telling, would say that's a home run because the idea behind compassionate release is. You have to evaluate the person who's in front of you, not the person you sentenced 22 years ago.
0: Yeah, let's be clear real quick. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I, I want to be clear to the, to the listeners. Arthur Tarnow, the U.S. district judge that let John Breadman Bass out, was the same judge that sentenced Breadman Bass back in 2003 to the double murder um, life in prison without parole. So, just playing on on what you said, uh, it's the it's the the trial judge that is making a evaluation now, uh, almost 20 years later. That you know, if the person that he sentenced in in 2003 or, or uh, presided over his trial in 2002, what is that person now in in 2021? And I know in in Arthur Tarnow's uh, opinion, he he said that uh, Mr. Bass had undergone a a, a transformative. Uh, rehabilitation and gotten his ged and was a life coach and um had done a lot of stuff to impress his trial judge that led that trial judge to overlook the criminal uh sorry the violent behavior and uh and release him sorry uh, continue right and
1: that's an important point to make scott because um What he said in his opinion is, look, this case started 22 years ago, and on the course of 22 years, there's been multiple federal prosecutors and multiple criminal defense attorneys on the case. Me, Arthur Townow, has been the only consistent person who has seen this individual and this case from beginning to end. And in that regard, I have to say it was a very compelling point. I mean... This is the judge who sentenced him to two life sentences and denied his 2255s. His, he had filed appeals once he was convicted. And this is the same judge who said, no, thank you. You're not getting your your conviction overturned. Now we are 22 years later in this pandemic. Bass has the trifecta, the, I think it's diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. Yeah, he's
0: 325 pounds.
1: Right. So he's got, I think the CDC tells us that if you have a BMI of, I don't know, something like 40, you're at risk. Or So he clearly falls in that category. And the court, I think, quite eloquently and analytically went through the factors, the primary factor being in 22 years, this is an individual who availed himself of all the BOP programming that he could. He got his GEO. GED he did the apprentice workshops he did you know this class that class and the other class and he did this believing he was serving a life sentence and to me that's very compelling I mean it's one thing to do the classes thinking you're going to get an early release but here we've got a guy who literally never thought he'd see the front door and he still did what he could to make himself a better person now you know whether it's a bunch of bullshit or not, I do not know. But the fact of the matter is, he did the programming BOP puts out there for its inmates. And that's what the judge looked at. The judge looked at his record and said, I've got a guy here who has programmed for the last 22 years. I'm going to take a chance on him and I'm going to let him go. And, um, you know, I think I said the other day to somebody, either you believe in, human redemption or you don't. And in this practice, I I really don't know what I believe in, but Judge Tarnow has consistently believed in second chances. So this opinion is consistent with his jurisprudence.
2: Can we talk about this from a, a macro perspective for a moment? Can we talk about some data in terms of how many the situation in prison right now, I mean, how many people are testing positive for? Oh, it's, a petri, it's a petri dish. Yeah. I mean, do we have any like raw data that we can go on to say, okay, this is how many prisoners are infected. And this is why this is an urgent situation that we take these cases into consideration. Can you speak to that, like at the macro level?
1: Yeah. What I can tell you is that BOP was never able to get a grip on this. And it's not, it's no fault on BOPs. I mean, we know now that we need to be socially distant and we need to exercise extra zealous hygiene in order to not catch this thing and bop because of the fact that it's in a custodial setting hasn't been able to get a grip on this that's why they themselves started releasing prisoners that's kind of an important point too i mean before you even hit the door of the courthouse it is a requirement that you go through BOP's protocol and ask for release. I think um, you had mentioned, Scott. um, Terry Flannery? Yes, it was Terry Flannery, yeah, and I looked him up because I didn't remember seeing an opinion come down on that, and that was a BOP release. That never hit the courtroom. So BOP, in recognition that this is really something out of its control, has its own protocol for releasing people. Now, I can tell you that um, FCI McKean, which is where Bass was, was one of the like top three or four uh, FCI facilities where there was outbreaks.
0: What state was that again? That's in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, that's in Pennsylvania. And that's where you're going to see Detroit guys go who have committed a violent crime and are sentenced to something higher than 10 years. I mean, there's... There's different grades in Detroit, as Scott, I know, I'm sure you know. So mm-hmm. that's, FCI McKean is one of the common places Detroit guys go who have a violent history.
0: And ter- Terry Terry Flunnery was in Ash, Ashland in Kentucky. And this is kind of playing on some of the nuance that, that you're speaking of. Now, Terry Flunnery, um, also known as Southwest T, one of the co-founders or the boss of the Black Mafia family, the most notorious, iconic, urban crime organization in American history, started here in Detroit, and then by the late 90s, early 2000s, had expanded to something like 23 or 24 different states, just an incredibly expansive organization with a lot of reach and a lot of notoriety. But Terry Funnery was not a violent offender. He was a nonviolent offender. He was merely convicted of a uh, running a continuing criminal enterprise which was his narcotics trafficking organization, but there was no counts of violence on on uh, on his case. Okay. So him and his brother, uh, Demetrius Big Meech Flannery, um, the the more infamous of the two brothers, uh, both took 30-year pleas in 2007. Um, their outdate was supposed to be 2032. Terry Flannery got a sentence reduction in, uh, I believe at the end of 19 or mid-19 where his sentence was reduced to where he was supposed to come out in 2026. And then fast forward six months, pandemic hits, two months into the pandemic, as um, Angelie mentioned, uh, uh, BOP lets Terry out of, uh, uh, of his prison cell in Ashland, Kentucky, and allows him to come back to Detroit to serve the remainder of his sentence on home confinement.
1: Okay, and so that makes sense because BOP's internal protocol is to evaluate the conviction. They're not going to get in underlying crimes or, you know, who your co-defendants are. Right. They're just looking at the actual conviction, and they're looking at what you've done in prison. They assign a pattern score to you, so they probably gave him a low pattern score. I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing he also availed himself of programming, BOP programming. Again, I don't know if the BOP programming is bullshit or not, but if they're doing it, they should get credit for it because I know plenty of inmates who go to prison and they don't do anything except watch TV. Yeah. So, you know, the system is working a little bit if you're taking advantage of what BOP has to offer and you're getting credit to it for it.
2: So I have some I looked this up. The, the This is from the Marshall Project, just for some context for people. So as of February 2nd, um, over three hundred and seventy thousand inmates have tested positive for um, coronavirus. And, um, in, in Pennsylvania specifically, which is where Bass was sentenced, um, it's 9,500 inmates have been diagnosed and that's, uh, comes out to 2,000 per 10, every 10,000 prisoners. So I just, just to, if, if someone is out there thinking, well, you know, um, why should we give a shit? Like, fuck, fuck these guys, like there's just, just some context of like this just seems like a public health crisis especially in in prison not just not
0: just everywhere else as in, angelie in mentioned i mean right. there are are inherent factors in in running a correctional facility that are diametrically opposed to taking uh covid uh precautions right i mean you can't socially distance Right. And, and hygiene becomes an issue. A lot of these guys, you know, only get to shower once every couple of days.
1: And it's group showers. Right. I mean, they're not literally grouped together, but it's not, you know, everybody's on top of each other, brushing their teeth, taking their yeah. shower, their dinners. Uh, there's no hand sanitizer. There's no alcohol-based hand sanitizer available, period. So you're stuck with washing your hands at. How often can you get to the restroom to wash your hands when you're stuck in a Petri dish with yeah. 500 guys? I shouldn't be laughing. I mean, it's not funny, no. but it's funny. It's almost like the worst possible environment yeah. to avoid COVID.
2: So just over 2,300 deaths, according to the Marshall Project, from in prison. So
0: how do you reconcile the fact that when we're uh, talking about the Flannery brothers, who are without a, without question the probably the two most notorious uh federal felons in terms of the the american drug game um it doesn't get any bigger than black mafia family and terry and demetrius flannery who are as i mentioned uh you know born and bred southwest detroiters who um both left the state in the 90s and 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 expanded their drug operation around the country but the 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 home base the epicenter of black mafia family always existed. In Detroit, how do you reconcile the fact that you know BOP didn't seem to have an issue letting Terry out early, um, but Demetrius Flannery right now, who again was the more infamous of the two, but they were both convicted of the same exact, as, both convicted in the same exact case, both nonviolent offenders, um, and Demetrius uh, seems to be not seems to be, but is hitting roadblock after roadblock to even get kind of consideration uh to to be released to home confinement
1: well you see the difference though right the one terry went through bop and hit a home run Mm -hmm. and beatrius i in order to get to the courts you have to go to through bop so i'm guessing
0: so he went through bop couldn't get out through the warden at his prison in uh oregon sheridan oregon
1: and is now
0: in front of david It was in front of david lawson
1: right perfect okay so David Lawson is going to do the same thing that Arthur Townow did. He's going to look at the person in front of him, not the person he sentenced. How long ago did he get sentenced?
0: Uh, they got sentenced in, well, they, they copped the plea in 07. I believe their sentencing was in 08. Okay. But they'd been locked up since 05.
1: Right. So I'm guessing, I didn't get a chance to pull the opinion, but I'm guessing there's less tangible.
0: Well, see, Terry fits what you said, the, the trifecta. Terry is a yeah. large man- who does have diabetes he's over 300 pounds Demetrius although they're brothers they're twin brothers but or excuse me they're not twin brothers they're although they're brothers they don't they don't have the same body type Demetrius was slimmer and and I think
1: they're young guys too aren't they How yeah they're both that-
0: they fifth I think Demetrius 52 and Terry's 50.
1: Okay so not um yeah so as far as Covid's concerned. I mean, we we know now from the literature that you're really more at risk when you're like 65, 70, 75. Yeah. That so he didn't have age working for him. I don't really know what his health issues were, but
0: he claimed that he had you know the covid concerns. He had a, a doctor's notes from Henry Ford saying that he met the same um, criteria that his brother did, but uh, uh, Judge Lawson rejected it.
1: Okay, so there's a couple of things going on. First of all, do you meet the medical criteria? Now in Bass's case, the government conceded he met the medical criteria. So the analysis is, do you meet the medical criteria? And if you do, well, let me look at the sentencing factors. The most um, pivotal sentencing factor here is, are you safe? Is it gonna? Are you gonna go out and commit another crime or can I feel good about myself letting you out? What have you done in prison in the last 10 to 15 years to show me that you will not recidivize, that show me that you have been rehabilitated. I didn't get a chance to pull the opinion, so I don't know what, if anything, he did, but that's the analysis the judges are undertaking. What's interesting here is that in Bass's case, Bass's, let's call it rehabilitative efforts, whether you believe it or not, Bass's rehabilitative efforts really outshined is terrible, horrible, ugly crime.
0: Well, to the judge, to the judge, it did.
1: Right, <laughs> and I think what was significant is he did that programming, never expecting to yeah. see the front door. And I think Judge Charnow even mentioned that here's a guy who's basically been sentenced to death, though it's not death; it's two life sentences. But what's he doing? How's he spending his time? Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about Bass is the judge did comment on his really. Um, long-term cooperation with the government on other homicides. It seemed like that was a a big deal to the judge. A lot of times, you know, when somebody's cooperating, either they're doing it to save their own skin or they're doing it because they have reformed and they have seen the error of their ways. And Judge Tarnow, in this situation, chose to believe that the cooperation was connected to the rehabilitation.
0: How much of a role do you think... Infamy plays in this decision Because when we're talking about Bass When we're talking about the Flannery's You're talking about people who have reputations that follow them I mean, Bass himself Might not be a household name um, for, for people uh, that, that follow the news in Detroit But if you look a little deeper Into the Bass story, all of a sudden you start coming up With the YBI connection And Young Boys Incorporated uh, You know, they ran the drug game in Detroit In the early, the late 70s and the early 80s They're uh boss was Milton Butch Jones the self-proclaimed Henry Ford of heroin uh and when he got out of his prison sentence uh on the YBI case he joined John Bass and his brother uh Pat Webb in the dog pound so i've actually seen some reporting that is incorrect in saying that John Bass was a leader of YBI but just having the, the letters YBI attached to your name, especially in Detroit, um, is going to give you a, a certain level of infamy. And then with the Flannery's, I think the, the biggest worry, in my humble opinion, you know, Demetrius Flannery, again, is not your average prisoner. He is someone that even from a prison cell uh, sways opinion. I mean, he can he control, I don't want to say controls, but he influences literally millions of people Um, I I read a a stat in one of his uh, court filings recently where the prosecutor uh, said that in the last, uh, I think it was either five years or 10 years, Demetrius Flannery's name has been shouted out on 175 hip-hop songs that have made the Billboard Top 50. 175 times in the last five years. Um, I mean, he, he, he is like... Uh, black jesus christ uh, to a lot of people <laughs> and i i don't
1: i don't how did this happen
0: uh, it's just kind of the <laughs> the the melding of of hip-hop and crime and culture um but what what
2: is that is it is that the judge's position that yeah i mean why is that relevant i mean if he if I'm, I'm
0: asking her do you does yeah. she think it plays a role you're
1: asking me does their reputation precede them when it comes yeah. to the decision right yeah I have to say no, because I gotta tell you guys, I have I have incredibly compelling clients sitting in prison right now who have no reputation for anything. You guys wouldn't know yep. them from you know, anybody else on the street. And I'm still having trouble getting them out. So I I I can't believe that the reputation is swaying one way or another. I mean, Scott, you know I have yep. I have a doctor was sentenced to 328 years in prison. He's at USP Terre Haute, which is where John Bass started out. Uh, John, I don't remember if his first name's John, where Mr. Bass started it's out. It's John
0: Bass, the bread man, yeah.
1: They were incarcerated together at USP Terre Haute. Bass worked his way down to FCI McKean, which is great. My client, because he was sentenced to 328 years, he can't work himself down. I mean, he's essentially sentenced to life at USP Terre Haute. First time offender, not arguing about his guilt or innocence. I mean, he prescribed narcotics that he shouldn't have prescribed. He was 64 at the time. Now he's 78. I've got a petition pending for him for his compassionate release. I don't, I have to believe that the reputation is not going to sway the court. I have to believe that the court's going to go on is this person at risk, which my client happens to be? And has this person rehabilitated themselves?
2: Can you speak to the, the your client you're talking about? What Can you give us more details about what, what, I mean, what do you mean he was prescribing things that he wasn't supposed to? Are we talking about painkillers or?
1: Yeah, so here's the deal. He ran, he's a doctor. He ran a medical clinic in Flint. And the feds must have got wind of some kind of, let's call it, Suspicious activity, so they sent in three undercover agents to basically get scripts from him And so what I mean by that is you know, they went in said this is my ailment my back hurts my knee hurts Whatever my client didn't perform the medical examination that was necessary and gave them the script this happened I want to say it happened three times with three undercover agents. So nine scripts he was charged with unlawfully prescribing nine scripts and he was convicted. And I'm not, again, here to argue his guilt or innocence, but he's also been in prison for 16 years in a maximum security prison. So, so
2: nine, nine, 300 for nine prescript. I mean, th- <laughs> this is, this is insane. I'm, I'm not saying he should have either, but 300, I mean, 300 I years for okay. someone who's writing. Prescri- I mean, I, I, I'm just uh, the boggles the I, mind
1: <laughs> I mean okay so since you're asking I'm gonna explain it what ended up happening was every script generated its own charge so even though the scripts were going to the same agents, every script generated its own charge and what would normally happen is if you're convicted you're gonna get sentenced let's say 20 years sentence everything is gonna run concurrent it's 20 years for your whole crime here the judge maxed out the client in other words he sentenced him to 20 years which is the stat max on every script totaling 328
2: years so let me ask you what i mean were they able to connect the scripts to so it's one thing if you're if you're prescribing something to someone and you're just not you're not like checking the background of the patient like to make sure that they have an mri or something like that but i mean could they connect like the people but it's another thing if you're writing prescriptions to like a member of BM, uh, you know, BMF or something like, and you, and, and, and you could, and you could demonstrate it's like a pill mill. I mean, was that, was the, there or any, the biker the, do b- that a lot. right. Yeah. Right. I mean, was there any evidence that these, the, there's like a nefarious, uh, you know, a reason for writing
0: these prescriptions? Well, that, he was in bed with some type of criminal organization.
2: Right. I mean, is there, is that part of the case? Oh God, no,
1: no, 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 This, No, my, my client worked alone. He wasn't, working with any big organization. He worked alone. I fully believe he did it for the 45 bucks he got in cash for each script. And he did it numerous times with undercover agents. Now I didn't represent him at trial, so don't quote me on any of this. I came in, actually I came in during COVID. Uh, Some of my clients told me about a doctor who was sitting in a maximum security prison serving a 328 year sentence. And I didn't believe it, I said, I said, no way. This can't. This can't be true. So I researched it, found it to be true, and uh, said, I, I got to do something because this is just outrageous.
2: I I agree with you. So who, who ratted him out was that? This, I mean, what the, I mean, the DEA was sniffing around. I mean, they, they're hot to bust these kind of guys right now. They're
1: so hot to bust these guys. I've got a doctor in Milan pre-trial. He has not gone to trial yet. He's also elderly. Got all got the covid trifecta he can't get out the dea is hot to trot
2: right now on the doctors yeah and i, and I think this is i mean we're we're i mean this is relevant i guess it, it, i'm going off the rails a little bit here but and we're talking about scott mentioned editorializing i think this is this is becoming a human rights issue because there are people who have legitimate pain issues who need prescription and doctors are not prescribing it because they're afraid of the dea and, and it's because of this. It's because of... Case. They don't want to... They, they, they write something wrong on the chart, and then the DEA raids the place and say, they're going to give you 20 years for writing a bad script. I mean, so there's people suffering out there who can't get their meds because the DEA is hot to, to, to bust these guys.
1: It's almost like you've got a bullseye. If you're a healthcare provider, you've got a bullseye on your back, so you better be careful. I don't even know how fun it is to be a doctor anymore. I mean... You know, 50% of my practice is healthcare fraud. And I don't, I'm telling you right now, these doctors are not enjoying their profession. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't.
0: I know the FBI right now is putting a lot of attention and resources into healthcare fraud. I had some conversations with some uh, current FBI agents back in the summer and they were telling me that. Um, And I think it's tied into uh, when we're talking about the the DEA and investigating the doctors that are maybe writing suspicious scripts, Um, but... It's such a complicated issue. I mean, you you have an opioid crisis right now that is full blown, and and you've gone from a situation where the last time we had this type of heroin epidemic, and and make no mistake about it, the the pills are it's just it's just synthetic heroin. You you know you you start popping pills and you get a habit. You're not that far away from jabbing a vein, um, and you know making this a little socio academic. You know the last time I I feel like our country. Uh, underwent this type of drug epidemic with heroin, it was in the uh, '60s and '70s, and it was kind of reserved to, to to black communities, and and now now it's in the suburbs and it's in ri- in rich white communities.
2: I mean, if I can push back because I'm I'm a ferocious critic of the war on drugs. Um, the, the so-called opioid epidemic right now, I mean, this is fentanyl. Th- this is coming from China and it's being processed by the Mexican cartels. It's not fucking 65-year-old doctors prescribing. Like, I mean, that, that, like there's right. just like this myth that everyone's hooked on opioids because their doctor's prescribing it. That's not what's happening. This is this is underworld. This is underworld. It's cartels. Gangland it's economy. Coming, yeah, right. It's coming from, so like the DEA to like emphasize and, and be hot to, to catch these doctors. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying like, the doctors, whatever, shouldn't be more careful. But I'm just saying, like this, this, this notion that that the doctors are the gangsters. That's that's not true. The, the gangsters are the gangsters here. That's where the pills are coming from. Fentanyl is coming from the cartels via China. I don't. I don't know if you have any comments on that. No, you're
1: right. It's almost like the DEA has shifted its focus from where the drugs are coming from to who's prescribing the drug. So that's a really excellent point, actually. What about the cartel? Why aren't we prosecuting those guys anymore? Why do you have the binoculars on the pain center? Why are you wiring up patients to go in to catch my doctors prescribing prescribing pills for me when I'm going in because my back hurts?
2: No, I agree. And I think it's, I would argue it's It's an, you know, and I, and I talk to people in the DEA and they profoundly disagree with me and I respect that, but I think it's... Um, because they're easier target who well, who's it easier to go after a fish old, in a barrel <laughs> right. or I or, mean compared to Chappo. going to El Chapo <laughs> right like it, it just makes it makes sense right well, who's easier target they're easier
1: targets and they have deeper pocket pockets because you know there's a whole component to these drug cases called asset forfeiture and mm. the DEA I mean and I worked with the DEA federal prosecutor and i respect the job they do but let us not forget there's a little something called asset forfeiture which means who's more lucrative for me my my cartel dealer where i don't know where his assets are right or my thing in his mansion well i'm going for the doctor because i can prosecute him and take his money Well oh, that's
2: huge because the, the guys yep. in mexico you'll never get your hands on that cash you, you'll, you'll never, never find it you'll, you'll never find, find him <laughs> You'll never find them let alone <laughs> right. their money right no, that's a huge, I didn't even think yeah. about that. That's huge. That, it incentivizes the,
0: the war on drugs. As we're winding down here, I kind of want to pivot to to, to a um, piece of legislation that I consider kind of a cousin to the conversation we're having right now with with COVID compassionate releases. Um, again, not to editorialize too much. Uh, I don't want to go into my political affiliation, but I will say, in my opinion, the one very good thing that our former president Donald Trump did was sign the First Step Act mm-hmm. um, in 2018, yeah, which is uh, providing sentence reductions to nonviolent offenders, um, and, and and by doing that, trying to to shed some of the population um, in in the prison system which then leads to some of the issues we're having with COVID. Uh, so it's all a vicious circle.
2: No, that's right. It is related because yeah. the, the, the COVID problem is even more of a problem because of mass incarceration, right. which is connected to the war
0: on drugs. And, and I, I don't per, I know, uh, personally, and I have a law degree, I don't practice. Um, I've studied the law. Obviously, I've written about uh, crime for the last 15 years. I don't believe that 99% of the time a nonviolent offender should be doing more than 10 years in prison. I mean, yeah, there's the Bernie Madoffs of the world that probably have, deserve to do more than yeah, that, or the yeah. Kwame Kilpatrick's that deserve to do more than that.
1: Oh, we didn't yeah. we didn't even play
2: into Kwame. But Kwame was we... a
0: pardon or a commutation. <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't related to COVID.
2: By the way, were you part of that prosecution team? Were, were you part of the team that went after Kwame, the prosecutors? Oh,
1: I was in the office okay. at that time, but no, I wasn't part of the team.
0: Okay. But with the First Step Act, uh, there's been a couple guys that I, I've been in uh, contact with while they were locked up Uh, And they were able to use the First Step Act to get sentence reductions, and they've both been released in the last uh, five, six months. And they're guys that went down on uh, drug continuing criminal enterprise cases, but there was no allegations of violence. And they both were serving what amounted to life sentences, uh, had tried to go through uh, the pardon process, both with with Biden, through the pardon process, both with uh, Trump and um, Obama. Um, but they were able to uh, get their uh, sentence reduced in the last six months. I'm sure COVID might've played a role in it as well. Daryl Chambers, who was the uh, cronk boxing drug kingpin um, who came up through the cronk gym with Tommy Hearns and Emmanuel Stewart. Uh, He was busted in 1993 or four. Uh, And then uh, Felix, the cat walls um, who went down in a a case around the same time in the mid nineties who, um, again, nonviolent offender, that they both were able to receive sentence reductions. I know in Chicago, there have been a number of uh, gangster disciple leaders that were looking at life sentences or, or you know, 50-year-plus sentences. Um, I think there are three pretty uh, prominent uh, gangster disciples that have come home in the last year on sentence reductions from the First Step Act. So I guess, uh, Anjali, just what's your opinion on on, uh, on on the First Step Act and and the kind of ripple effect something like that could have?
1: Yeah, I definitely have to give Trump props on that because I have, um, I can tell you in quite tangible ways that I have several clients who benefited from the First Step Act. Uh, A big deal for them was the good time credits. I am not sure if I have my math right, but I think prior to the First Step Act, my guys were getting 53 days of good time credit a year. And that President Trump increased that amount. So I think it went up to 57 days a year, which, you know, you wouldn't think is a big deal. But when you're looking at five or eight or 10-year sentences, all those days accrue. So I had guys who, you know, got home even just a few months early, which is a lifetime when you're in prison. So I have to give him credit for that. I wish he didn't. He did this all because Jared Kushner got involved for his with- old
2: man. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and, Kanye, and Kanye West was, <laughs> was campaigning pretty hard for this, and his wife, Kim Kardashian, is doing a lot of stuff for uh, lifers and trying to get them out.
1: So Jared's dad went to prison, then yeah. he got into the step back and all this other stuff, and then Trump gave him a pardon. Yeah. So that was a bummer. I was, I mean, I wouldn't
2: well,
0: have, I agree. I I agree could, we could do that. a whole episode on Kwame's uh, pardon or commutation, and it, it just makes me sick. And it has nothing to do with race and has nothing to do with... Uh, it's it's right and what's it's it's black and white. It's what's and not 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 black and <laughs> white in terms that. of race. <laughs> it's 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 good good versus evil. And if Kwame Kilpatrick would have done 20 years of a 28 year sentence, um, I would feel comfortable letting him out early. But. For someone that's done not even a quarter of the sentence, has done seven years, has not shown one iota of contrition. Constantly wants to try to play the race card. Constantly wants to paint himself as the victim. A- and and this man raped our city for for six years, seven years, um, and and pushed us back. Uh, God knows how 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 far uh, we we had to go back on the board in order to go forward to where we are right now. And thank God the city yeah, but
2: Doug and applauded it. I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a lot of curious no I mean, things going on. And I worked I worked with some of Kwame's people in in the Crime Town podcast that I was involved in um, two years ago uh, with with uh, uh, podcasters in New York, and uh, we gave him this opportunity to come on the podcast, and he I think he had three episodes and gave him something like three hours to talk, and you know all three hours was just him saying what a victim he was, and I'm like why don't you use these three hours to 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 try to make amends, to try to take some ownership of what you did. Instead, he says the only thing he did wrong was was lie under oath yeah, about his affair.
2: He doesn't seem like he's wired that way to, <laughs> to But can you mention some of the other before before we wrap up some of the other prominent underworld figures that are using specifically the COVID compassionate release? You mentioned some earlier Flannery, but there's a few others that
0: are interesting. In Detroit, um
1: Leonard Moore, you gave me Leonard Yeah, so uh,
0: Leonard Big Leonard Big Daddy Moore uh, yeah. probably the most powerful outlaw biker in the state of Michigan. Um, the leader of the Highwaymen, which is the biggest outlaw motorcycle gang in the state numbers wise. Uh, he was convicted in a, a pretty sprawling, uh, racketeering case back in 09, I believe.
1: But he had that COVID trifecta. I looked him yeah. up. He had high blood pressure, diabetes, lung disease, and he's 72. So yeah. there you
0: go. But he got out like 16 years early. Uh, Street Lord Juan, Dewan Wren, aka Street Lord Juan got out I think five years early. Uh, he was a a, a rapper/ slash drug dealer um, who was tied into the Blade icewood crew of the early 2000s, the Cheddar boys and all those guys um, So those were those were two in addition to the Flannery's. Uh but then you know Daryl Chambers, uh, uh, Felix walls, I mentioned them on the first step act. Uh, I think the, the the Puritan Avenue boys, the PA boys, which is a another pretty big West Side um, crime group, uh, uh, Reggie Danzi and, and Damone Slim Brantley, who were the leaders of that crew, have been in prison for about 17 years. And they both, kind of what uh, Angelie was saying, they didn't get huge sentence reductions, but I think they both walked out like four or five months early. Um, okay based on covid concerns but they were kind of trending towards coming out early anyway but they got out earlier than they anticipated.
2: And any of the were there some Italian
0: guys too? Uh, were trying there to... was not in Detroit there were some Italian guys or or, yeah, or, or mafia figures in Detroit that have died from covid. Right. Toto Ruggerello, right. uh, uh Eddie uh Eddie Caram uh steady Eddie Carum. Uh, I know in Chicago uh Mario Renoni got out early. He was a a, a mob enforcer. Um, for c- compassionate release on compassionately related to COVID, yeah. And there's been a a handful of New York mob guys that have gotten out. I thought
2: some of the cartel guys that are well, a lot of the
0: cartel guys have uh, kind of what Angeli was saying. A lot of the cartel guys have made, uh, you know, have have filed uh, through their attorneys for for compassionate release. And right. these are guys that I doubt were it. <laughs> these were like you know uh, contemporaries of of Pablo and El Chapo. Right. Um, Guys that were running either the Medellin cartel or the Cali cartel, uh, and, and they haven't been successful in those endeavors.
2: Yeah, I don't see that
0: <laughs> happening.
1: <laughs> Although anything's possible, I mean, hence John Bass getting out. Yes, who would that's have thought, true. Who really, who would have? Who could have seen that coming?
0: No, that's a good point. No, that's why it got national headlines. That's why I yeah. was reading about it in the New York Post yesterday. Um, right. Well, we want to thank uh, Anjali Prasad for uh, coming on. I'm sorry if I was butchering your name. <laughs> you are a, uh, an outstanding advocate, and they have an amazing reputation. And we are uh, just in debt to you for coming on and sharing your knowledge. And um, oh, and, let's,
1: let's go with Kwame next time. Yes, yes, <laughs> for
0: sure. You have to come back on. And for sure. is there any? <laughs> is there anything uh, you want to get out there to plug, or any other uh, stuff you want people to know about you, or any cases that you're involved in right now?
1: Uh, well, I like I said, I was a federal prosecutor for many years. I now do federal criminal defense. Um, I did about, I mean, 50% of my caseload last year was compassionate release. I've got a lot of guys who are still incarcerated I'm trying to get out, but my heart's with my doctor that I mentioned. It's Dr. Mukherjee. It was a... Um, eastern district of michigan case he's sentenced to 328 years in usb Haute. that petition is pending i do not have a decision back yet so i just um i mean i'm keeping my fingers crossed for him
2: yeah i mean I, that's a compelling case So i appreciate you coming on but also bringing that to our attention and um thanks again for coming on uh you're always welcome on the original gangsters podcast. Good, good luck with that. And um, to everyone out there listening, remember uh, to check out some of our other episodes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and um, we'll see you next time on
0: the original gangsters podcast. Thanks again. Okay. See you guys. Bye. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to keep you from your mom. Have a great uh, birthday dinner. We will be be on touch. and, And if you're, if you're game, we'd love to have you back on.
1: Oh, I, I love to do it. I mean,
0: I do WXYZ a lot. Okay. Yeah. This 100%. is perfect. This yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for the audience for uh, consuming this episode. This is just uh, kind of one subject of a a wide array of original gangsters content that we want to bring you, whether we're talking about policy issues like we've talked about in these last couple episodes, or we're talking about great historical stories, or we're talking about breaking news, or if we're talking about, you know, we're always trying to look for for that nexus between pop culture and crime. That's what we're going to be giving you here on the OG. We hope you like it. And we're going to keep bringing it to you. I'm Scott Bernstein, Jimmy Bucciolato. Thanks to Wade Fink. Thanks to our producer, WJR, The Great Voice, Podcast Network. Look for that. StartupNation.com. We are in your debt, and we love being part of the, of the family here. Scott Bernstein, JB, we're out. We'll see you next time on an Original Gangsters Podcast.